This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. World War II was a big event and Karen Turner has written a big book, nearly 700 pages. But this book just concentrates on less than 12 months and only one family, a neighbour and strangers. Welcome to Published or Not, Karen. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. Well, Karen, firstly, the family. Now, this is a quote. 18 months ago, John hiked his Navy issue haversack onto his shoulder, kissed her and the children, trotted down the Broughton Hall Drive, eager for adventure. He'd never looked back. So what do we learn about John from page one? They were brought together by their family and it was sort of just an expected thing that they would marry. So there probably wasn't this driving passion for him to stay. Even though he had children, he wanted to get out and he wanted to live his life. Doesn't mean he was a poor father or a poor provider, but he'd been thrown into this marriage and it probably wasn't what he'd had in mind all along. And uh, when the war came along, it was irresistible for him. And what do we know about him? But he died very early on in the war. So Jessica is only 28 and widowed. Would you Mm -hmm. call Jessica worldly? No, she is definitely not worldly. She's lived in Yorkshire all her life. She's had a close family. She's been sheltered. She married John. They moved out to a rural estate. They had the twin children. And now suddenly she's she's widowed and she's got to try and make do on her own. Her favourite swear word is <laughs> Lucifer balls. And when yes. things are really bad, it's Lucifer's big hairy balls. <laughs> now, as she, you say, she has eight-year-old twins, Mary, who is a little more insightful than a bouncy brother, Tom. She mm-hmm. also has a mum and dad. They live in Leeds. They own a, a shop, a corner store. And, of course, Leeds at the time was being heavily bombed by the German Luftwaffe, so she's quite concerned about them. Jessica has taken on this farm, which is really hard work, and she's enlisted the help of Sam and Mark. When John left to go to war before he was killed, Jessica ran an ad in the local paper asking for help that included uh, living accommodation. So Marg and Sam came along and they were living in the gardener's cottage at the end of the property and Marg sort of does some housekeeping duties to help out while Jessica and Sam look after the, the small dairy concern. So Jessica is a sense of following in the footsteps of others. And this brings us to our first stranger, Mm. who is no stranger to the house. So who is this Alexandra Broughton? Alexandra Broughton is a young girl who used to live in the house back in Regency time. So we're talking around 1810. Alexandra had a Border Collie dog and Jessica quite regularly sees Alexandra's shade wandering the halls of of Broughton Hall. And it's not just her, her children do too. Her children do too, And then Jessica finds a box in the garden. Your listeners may not have read my other books, but my previous books, Torn and Inviolate, actually tell the story of Alexandra. Oh. And Alec- and it is Alexandra's life story in the in Torn and Inviolate. Now, Alexandra writes a diary and she she leaves it to somebody who can bury it in, in the garden for her because she just knows that down the track she is going to leave this to somebody to look after. But the key is that during... 
the books in Alexandra's life, she also sees a ghostly figure of a, a young woman with long auburn hair living in, in the house and, and realises that this woman does not live in her time. So the two women, almost like a time cross, when Alexandra has this diary buried in the garden, Jessica happens to dig it up and finds it and it's Alexandra's life story. And through that diary, Alexandra talks to Jessica. Alexandra in her life falls for a man that is completely unsuitable. Her mother tries to marry her to somebody she detests. So she's, she's living under the constraints of young ladies in the Regency period. And through her voice, Jessica starts to realise that two women have a connection. Neither of them can, you know, live the lives that they want to live. I mean, Jessica still has, even in the 1940s, she still has constraints. For example, she goes to see her bank manager who says, oh, it's nice to see you, love, but don't you have a father or a brother or somebody that can can deal with your banking for you? So, you know, the two ladies, even though there is a time slip between them, they communicate. Well, I haven't read the other books. and Oh, shame on you. (laughs) I didn't need to. Thank you for the fill-in there. Now, I spoke about the neighbours, and these are the Tylers. They're sheep farmers, Albert, the father, who knew the Broughton family and gives Jessica more insight into who they were. And then there is his son, Robin Tyler. Describe him. Well, Robin Tyler is sort of uh, setting himself up as a would-be Errol Flynn lookalike, although Jessica's not entirely convinced. She thinks Errol Flynn's better looking and suggests it might be those Tasmanian waters. (laughs) However, Robin is working for the government and uh, he comes around to investigate a few things and uh, we might chat about that a little later. But yes. Robin Robin tries to woo Jessica into revealing more information that Jessica would like to reveal. She and the children go out with him to uh, the May Day Fair and she even allows a kiss. Mm, yes. children are not won over by his good looks. So no. out of the sky another stranger arrives and this is where the book gets its title Stormbird. The Stormbird is Anton Vogel who is a Luftwaffe pilot and he is en route to Leeds to do what the Luftwaffe do and uh, he's shot down and wounded and ends up in Jessica's barn as a wounded fugitive. Mm, So what do you do with an injured German on your farm? How does Sam and Mark, how do they deal with this German pilot? Well, Sam and Marg, they lost their son in, in the, uh, the First World War. And their initial response was if, if a German woman had taken our son in and nursed him back to health, you know, we would have been grateful. We would have given anything for that to have happened rather than lost our son. So this young man that has ended up in Jessica's barn, he's just a young man with a family worried about him in Germany. And uh, they wanted to perhaps do the humane thing and nurse him back to health. The surprise is the children, Mary and Tom, also know of Mr Bird. And they've got strong feelings about him. They really like him. So it's Jessica who's the last to know. And she back worries about what to do with a prisoner of war. She can't leave him in the stable as she thinks that without a toilet, she would be revoking Geneva Convention and torturing <laughs> the prisoner. But a dead prisoner in the house is possibly worse than a live prisoner. 
And in the many weeks of convalescing, his improved fitness and his desire to help lead to perhaps other desires. What was going on in Jessica's mind? Well, I think the what was going on in Jessica's mind is that, um, you know, those barriers that she had, The she lost her husband to the Germans very early on, a German new boat. So she's a widow because of these, these the people. And she had been raised to see the whole German culture as something evil and terrible. Her father fought, fought in the First World War, so she had it right from childhood that, you know, the Germans are this race that we don't trust, we don't like. And then suddenly there's this man in her barn who's surprisingly well-behaved. He's decent, he's polite, he's very ill and vulnerable. So while she's very suspicious of him and it flies in the face of everything she's grown up with, she decides that, okay, well, maybe I should do the humane thing too. Maybe if a, if, if a German woman had found my husband and nursed him back to health, that would have been preferable, just like Sam and, and his son. So almost reluctantly, against her better judgment, she agrees to nursing back to health. And uh, through that, the two of them communicate and get to know each other and a rather unlikely friendship springs up. A third of the way through the book, we think passion will overturn sensibilities. But Jessica wants the relationship with the captain to only continue as a friendship, a quote. You are a handsome young man and I am a foolish, lonely widow. Let us forget this happened. However, <laughs> Jessica has also refused any liaison with Robin Tyler. He says he wants to protect her. We can understand the concept of being an enemy, but we can't quite understand the concept of wanting to protect the enemy. So in the village, and, you know, she comes from a small village, she's living on the outskirts of a small village, and the villagers know that the the plane was shot down. They know the pilot was never found. They're starting to suspect that Jessica is in on she knows something. So Robin feels that he can protect Jessica from the worst of the fallout from the villagers and their gossip and everything else. But it's also in his interest because it's his business to bring this, this fugitive into the authorities. So he's saying to Jessica, I'm going to protect you from whatever you might face with the village just fess up. Tell me you've got him. I'll deal with it. After another episode of Robin Tyler's over-attention and quizzing of Tom, her son, Jessica rages at him. Let's hear that from page 324. Oh, yes. Perhaps it was the devil in her or her newfound confidence, but without her even thinking about it, she was vigorously unround the window and leaned out. And if you ever thought for a moment that I might be tempted to sleep with you, she allowed her gaze to sift condescendingly up and down his frame. I'd rather sleep with Adolf Hitler and his entire band of madmen before I'd even let you hold my hand. Well, this, of course, makes Robin vindictive as well as more inquisitive. And the problem that Jessica understands, and this is from Stormbird, I'm quoting, if the captain is discovered, if I'm found to have concealed him, they will lock me away. I will lose my children. And Marg, the true Yorkshire woman, tells of the gossip she heard about another woman who fraternised with the Germans. And here we have Karen Turner reading from page 480. Marg raised her eyes to meet Jessica's. Love, she were a young woman from a good home and all. 
the villagers, they dragged her from her house, shaved her red, stripped her naked and paraded her around the town centre. Jessica stared mutely down at her own hands, clasped in her lap. Marg reached over to touch her lightly on the upper arm. Love, do you understand? This woman, even her family did not to help her, just stood by with the entire village, children included, jeering her and throwing muck at her. Oh, yes. So it's a hard decision what to do. Well, Stormbird has many suspenseful moments. These were thrilling to read, especially as Robin and other people noticed the improvements being carried out on Jessica's farm. And so to the nighttime raid and a chase through bombed out England on trains and buses to where and what, you will have to read yourself. As I said, this was a big book. So your research, Karen Turner, it, was, it went from the speed and history of the Messerschmitt aeroplane to making butter. There's a lot here. Yeah. Yes, there is. There's an awful lot there. I, I have to say, though, that my, my grandmother drove an ambulance through bombed-out leads in the day and helped to rescue people who were uh, victims of the, the bombing. My mother was born in 1941. She tells me stories of growing up playing amongst the rubble and the deprivation of not having food and the sorts of food that we take for granted these days. So I had all of that. But, yes, I had to research things. I had to... I had to find out what it might be like for a cow to give birth because there's a scene where a calf is born. I had to learn how to make a butter churn and I did the research for that and found it fascinating. I thought I could actually build one of these contraptions. <laughs> there is an awful lot of research and, and there's so much research you do that you don't use, but it all helps to place me, the writer, in that zone so I can be part of the environment and more easily write about it. Well, if we've picked listeners interest how can they best get a copy of Stormbird and the two previous books well all of my books are available online you can buy them from the book depository you can buy them from amazon you can buy the topia um, you can buy them in print or you can buy them in e-format in that you can also contact my website karenturner.com.au and all the books can be purchased directly through my website it's all there well, as I said, a big read. Bravery is another word for endurance. Love is another word for sacrifice. Read it in Karen Turner's Stormbird. Thank you, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. And now here's David McLean. During times of difficulty, we often find comfort and solace in the company of others or in literature, art and music, or, as in Michael McGurr's case, in the ideas and wisdom to be found in philosophy. Michael's latest book, Ideas to Save Your Life, Philosophy for Wisdom, Solace and Pleasure, is both a journey through the history of philosophy and a contextualising with contemporary and personal references. So, Michael, welcome to 3CR. It's wonderful to be here, David. Thank you for having me. It is going to be difficult to tackle each and every philosopher that you introduce us to in this book. They range yes. from the ancient Greeks to uh, current Australian voices. But the intriguing thing for me is the contextualisation. You give us real-life situations and examples, and one of the most challenging is actually in the introduction. Suicide, in my experience, seldom comes at the end of a process of serious rational thought. 
It is more likely to be the opposite, an unravelling of the thread that sews all our thoughts together to create a purposeful and beautiful person. You provide us with examples of student suicide, and that's very confronting. Well, thank you, David, and you're certainly jumping in at the deep end, but philosophy is a pool that has no shallow end, David. So let's look. I came at this book from several directions, and one is as a high school teacher. And I had one dreadful year where three kids, all aged 16, 17, in my homeroom made attempts on their own life. You know, thankfully, none of them completed the act. So I was very blessed, but I did get very wrapped up in their story. And teachers disagree about all sorts of things. But they'd be united by this investment in the health and happiness of their students. You want to see your students thrive. So I, and I'm not so callous as to say that anybody um, endangers themselves because of their philosophy. It's more that having a way of constructing meaning in the world or purpose in the world, actually, well, it's a safety net in a way. It's a place to be a self. And I think if you want to not be a self, that's pretty sad. And philosophy gives you a way to understand what a self is and how a self can be creative and wonderful. So my angle on philosophy was extremely practical. I'm not an um, analytical philosopher. I'm not a philosopher who does fine tuning on the meaning of little tiny things. For me, I have a dear friend who is a, a very fine philosopher who uh, thinks of philosophers as tradies. They're basically doing a job. They're making something. They're fixing something. But it's also so, a way of approaching thought. It's not providing answers. It's an approach yeah, to thought. Yep. The very engagement with uh, the big picture, even if it doesn't bring you to a particular resolution, is uplifting, you know, and enriching. We often get that expression in the advice industry. You know, there's plenty of people in the advice industry and life coaches and all this. And they always say, don't overthink it. The last three words in this book are don't underthink it. Because, you know, people just reduce life to a series of cliche statements of the obvious motherhood statements recycled over and over again. Well, you know, I reckon there's a lot of, uh, to use uh, William James's expression, there's a lot of zest in scratching a bit deeper. Now, one interesting thing here is a lot of the philosophers you introduce us to were in fact very troubled individuals. Wittgenstein was benighted by a famously difficult personality. Mm. Simone Weil regularly abandoned comfortable accommodation to find mm. worse lodgings. It seems a lot of them were looking for ways of addressing their own frailties. It's funny. Or... Look, I hadn't thought about this before you mentioned it, David, but the philosophers in this book, they're not a particularly jolly bunch, are they? I mean, there's a few who are really happy. Rumi was extremely happy. And I, and I think Iris Murdoch, in her own way, was pretty content, you know, as she went along. And... Wittgenstein, whom I love as a philosopher, was a most troubled gentleman. Same applies to Kierkegaard, who I love as a philosopher, but he, he, he had a gift for buggering up his own life. Absolute gift. And yeah, there's a number. But you know, philosophy is no guarantee of happiness in a trivial sense. It's just an on 
ongoing journey with the spade in hand to, you know, dig under the surface. But it's the enjoyment of that journey. Yeah. It's not finding yeah, an yeah. answer. It's that journey uh, that is important. One of the places I start this book is with a bit of a go at, you know, the idea of well-being. Well-being is great. And, you know, we all want, especially young people, anybody to uh, feel content and peaceful. Yeah. We uh, had a friend who used to be the chief financial officer up at Chadston, which is an enormous shopping centre. And he would tell us the amount of uh, shop space that was going over to the well-being industry. And that the whole trouble with well-being, it becomes very self-focused and mindfulness and all these sorts of things, which is fundamentally about the, me being the hub of meaning in my own world. And that's very limited. That actually, is a, it's, a, it's a dead end street. And I try to move the language of well-being to the language of well-finding. I used to always ask my kids, where is the well in your village? Where is the place that the community gathers and from you which you draw water? And metaphorically, where is the well in your village? So to move from well-being to well-finding is a shift from a focus on oneself as the centre of meaning to a focus on what's beyond yourself. Interestingly enough here, you personalise a lot of this uh, philosophy. There is a, an undercurrent or a backstory to this book, which is you on your own journey, it would seem, because uh, it's a product of your unemployment, shall we say, or a change of situation, and you connect it with your own father's story or what you remember of your mm, father's yeah. story and even comment uh there's a comment from your wife about how you deal with grief so it seems yeah. you were going through this journey yourself in putting this book together very much so and that was challenging for me i think the great philosophers really help you get a handle on you know who who you happen to be uh, it's interesting, there was a whole raft of philosophers uh, in both Europe and the United States after World War II, and I was astonished reading A.C. Grayling's History of Philosophy, because he knew most of these people. They'd all fought in World War II. They had all been to war, and not one of them ever brought that experience into their philosophy. Now, I don't get that. I absolutely don't get that. Whereas Martha Nussbaum, who is a contemporary, very fine, wonderful philosopher from the United States, her philosophy is, so, for example, her book on anger deals with the rise of Donald Trump and the Trump presidency. So that's something contemporary in her world and deals with her own anger there. But she roots this back, and for Martha Nussbaum, always back in classical Greek philosophy, with which she's very up-to-date and so on. And it's a, it's a discussion between the grand tradition and what I'm experiencing now, and in her case, quite political. Now, in my case, I read this book at a time I was struggling to find a job. Um, there are other things happening in my life. I, I reached 60, and um, I, I'm just feeling, hmm, golly, what's, what's it all about, you know? So I brought that. I brought those. I brought those insecurities to the book. There's also another aspect of you in this book which I relate to. Uh, Plotinus well knew the word animal and animation derived from the root mm. 
anima meaning breath, but also soul. You love to ground things in the very word itself and find its origin. That seems to be a little trait of yours. It is. And I think if you find if you find the root stock of your language, you can understand it and grow stuff on it. It's just like planting. Find the root stock. And I know it's not 20 to say, but 55% of the English language, the English language is the most subtle thing that the human race has ever created. The other Go interesting on. thing about the English language, though, and the argument that actually comes up in the English language course of the VCE, does the language shape how we think in terms of determine what we can think, or have we created the language in order to think? And that is a philosophical conundrum, which I don't think we'll answer here today. Well, as they say, as they say in uh, rowing, it's an either-or situation. Actually, it's these two things are not mutually exclusive. But Wittgenstein put the question. Can you have a thought that you cannot put into words? And his famous phrase was, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. But he actually came to doubt that himself. A number of the philosophers I'm really interested in are operating at the edge of language. So Pythagoras was one of these. Uh, Rumi was one of these. Wittgenstein himself was one of these. That there are things just at the fingertips of what you think you can say and this is where a mystical philosopher is you know that there is a mysterious area where you can put it into words but it's not quite right um, another interesting yeah. thing when we get into some of these uh, individual philosophers and we haven't got time to, to touch on them all we might touch on one or two talking about on the edge the clarification here Pythagoras I always thought of him as a mathematician but he's a mystic he's seeing numbers as a pattern which enables him yeah. to see the shape of the world his interest was not numbers his interest was really a uh, beauty and order now what we learned at school pythagoras theorem was around before pythagoras but it was owned by that community because it wasn't a sublime expression of of order but pythagoras philosophy begins with music and with his realisation, or that community's realisation, that if you put your finger on a particular place in a string, it creates a more tuneful note than at other places. And this is a relationship of the material thing, namely the string or the instrument, and an immaterial thing, namely harmony, sound. And for Pythagoras, numbers are the point at which the material and the immaterial come close together and that creates patterns and meaning and so on. Pythagoras was enormously influential on Plato and on uh, Islamic philosophy hmm. and uh, Islamic philosophy tends to be Pythagorean. Another interesting one which is I'm afraid where we're going to have to end the discussion, Socrates and cheese. I suppose I use cheese as a sort of an image in the book as a difference between uh, cheese that is made as a result of a process and cheese that's made as a result of a tradition. Now, processed cheese comes in those little plastic slices, no flavour. Cheese made as a result of a tradition, messy, smelly, gorgeous. Similarly, contemporary education is suffering from too little tradition and too much process. Yeah. Sometimes seems in danger of forfeiting reason 
and pandering to mobs, which actually sums up what I see as happening in a lot of educational institutions where we're all about churning students through a factory and processing them for results and not acquainting them with the delights of the thinkers of the age and the literature of the age. I know. Yeah, and teaching has become so, in some respects, schools, not teaching schools, have become very bureaucratic. We, we understand the reasons, you know, and some of the reasons are perfectly good and understandable. But I still take great hope from the teachers who manage to just do that paperwork in a, you know, compliant, minimal way. But in the classroom, they read kids like a they inspire those teachers are still there David and I just hope that people entering the teaching profession get a chance to be sort of not too boxed in and to actually you know enter the imaginative world of young people and just love it well folks I've been talking to Michael McGurr his book is ideas to save your life philosophy for wisdom, solace and pleasure. There's much more we could have talked about in terms of the philosophies covered, but it's a text publishing release. So, Michael, thank you very much for talking with me today. Oh, David, thank you. And thanks to 3CR. It's an oasis in a desert. 3CR, an oasis in the desert. Thanks for listening. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.